Welcome to Talking Pictures. My name is Christian Gensel. I'm a filmmaker and film journalist from Salzburg, Austria. Talking Pictures is an interview series in which I talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies, from cult movie directors to character actors, from seasoned veterans to brilliant newcomers, from celebrated artists to filmmakers who haven't received the recognition they deserve. These folks have lots of fascinating stories to tell. Today's guest is screenwriter Jeremy Pixer, best known as the co-writer of Warren Beatty's political satire Bullworth, for which they got both an Academy Award and a Golden Globe nomination. In Bullworth, a senator decides to end his life and spend his last few days telling the truth wherever he goes during his re-election campaign, which naturally completely disrupts the world of politics. Jeremy talks about the genesis of the movie, which came out in 1998 during Bill Clinton's second term, about the difficult writing process with Warren Beatty, about truth and politics, about the often discussed ending of the movie, about Aaron Sorkin's contributions to the screenplay, and about the idea of a Bullworth figure in today's political landscape. We also talk about some of the other projects Jeremy's been involved in. His career started as a contributor to Warren Beatty's Reds, a film about the life of communist activist John Reed. He wrote the Diane Keaton movie The Lemon Sisters, and more recently he was the co-writer of another political satire, War Incorporated, starring John Cusack. The interview was conducted in connection with our German-language companion podcast Lichtspielplatz. So if you speak German, go to www.lichtspielplatz.at where you'll find an in-depth discussion of Bullworth in episode number 45. If you enjoy my conversation with Jeremy Pixer, make sure to check out our other interviews at talkingpicturespodcast.com and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and the podcast platform of your choice. So here is Talking Pictures with Jeremy Pixer. I'd like to talk about Bullworth, a movie that involves a politician who decides to tell the truth for the remainder of his life, which he thinks is not very far away. What do you think, how much truth can the political system stand? That's an interesting question. I mean, I don't, I mean, the, the political system, if what we have now is still a system, I think the political system can really withstand pretty much anything, uh, whether or not a candidate possibilities to operate in that system can withstand honesty. That's another story. Um, very, very, very little, I think, is, is the case on that. I, I don't think, I think politicians who try to tell the truth, if there were any, wouldn't last very long as politicians. Mm. On, on the other hand, politicians who give the appearance of telling the truth are very fashionable right now. I mean, that's Trump. Mm. Trump's, Trump's appeal to the people that he appeals to is that they think he's telling the truth, unlike every other politician. And the only thing they're right about is, is that all the other politicians are lying. Um, that's true. Um, mm. And the only true thing that Trump says is they're all lying. When Trump says fake news, he's right. It is fake news, except when it's reporting on his crimes. That's, that's the truth. But, and even then, it's exaggerated. Uh, everything that he's called, the only thing that's not true is everything he says. But, but when he says the other people are lying, that is the truth. They are. They're all lying. His lies are worse, in my opinion, and, and, and what he's trying to do is worse. Um, but, uh, but they're all lying. 
There was only one Bullworthian moment in, in Trump's campaign, um, initial campaign, was when he was in the, on the debate stage with all the other Republicans. And he said, I've given money to all of these guys. And when I call them, they pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. That was a Bullworthian truth. But it's very rare that he ever says anything even vaguely true. But his appeal mm-hmm. is unfiltered. And he is unfiltered to say any crazy thing that comes into his sick mind. But, um, uh, but people want unfiltered. They are sick of being filtered. Now, you know, of, of their information being filtered, filtered by gatekeepers. Mm-hmm. Um, let's put it the other way around. Do you think that a certain amount of let's call it lies or untruths, is necessary to keep up the political system? This political system? Yes. I don't think necessarily any political system. But, yeah, I mean, this, this political system is based on, the, on inequality and exploitation. And if you said that, people wouldn't support it anymore. So they have to make up things that it's supposed to be about, that it's not about. Mm-hmm. What it's about is exploitation and oppression and inequality. Um, there's an interesting quote in the uh, review of Bullworth by Roger Ebert, where he says that you realize that if all politicians were as outspoken as Bullworth, the fragile structure of our system would collapse and we would have to start all over again. That would be a good thing, in my opinion. Okay. What would that new start look like? Uh, you know, uh, I'm not, I don't believe in those kinds of hypotheticals. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I do think we're, personally, I mean, this is the personal view. I don't think it's a view of the film Bulworth by any means, which is in no way exclusively my view. You know, it's, it's, it's Warren's film. I brought a certain character to it uh, that I honestly, without bragging, well, maybe I am bragging. I feel my, my, my sensibility is really kind of what distinguishes Bullworth from almost any other political satire. But it doesn't say everything that I want, what I believe, and only what I believe. It says very much what, what Warren believes. I, for one, don't believe in uh, this idea of getting money out of politics is going to solve anything. Um, the campaign finance reform is going to solve anything. I mean, Bulwars was actually written before Citizens United. Mm-hmm. We were saying it's incredibly corrupt. And then they passed this new law that's 10 times more corrupt, or it's not passed a law, they made a decision in the, con- in the Supreme Court that opens the floodgates to, to obvious political corruption. And now everybody says, oh, we have to change Citizens United. Well, it was impossibly corrupt before Citizens United. I mean, taking money out of politics is like saying, well, we need to take money out of society. Mm. I think we do need to take money out of society, but you'll, as long as money's in society, you'll never get it out of politics. Because politics grows out of society. Money is what makes the society work. And politics will always reflect that. So when, when you say, how would we start over? I mean, the political system isn't going to collapse independently of, of everything else. Um, I think the situation we're facing in the next, somewhere between five months and 20 years, is, is the collapse of Western civilization as we know it. That's my own view. 
Um, mind you, I've been thinking that for about 40 years, and I haven't been right yet. <laughs> but I think, I think time is catching up with me. Mm. Um, I think with, with the, the, the climate collapse and the effects of that on global migration patterns, life in the, you know, the metaphorical southern half of the planet is no longer, is already not sustainable. And people in the global south are coming north to get the only stuff there is to get. And that's leading to war and fascism. That's why we have Trump. That's why we have the right, the resurgence of Nazism in Germany. That's why we have, you know, and um, that's not something that's going to change. And then you add to that uh, climate crisis. I mean, the climate, I mean, climate crisis is actually, I think, a large part of causing that migration. Um, I just don't think this way of doing stuff is sustainable. So start over if you want to know what it would look like. I think you have to look at the Zapatistas. In, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the Zapatistas in uh, Chiapas in southern Mexico. No. Uh, they've, they've created a self-regulating, sustainable, uh, autonomous area of several hundred thousand people. And they have, uh, they have a non-market-based society that is basically off the grid and ecologically sustainable. That's, that's what starting over looks like to me. Mm -hmm. But I'm crazy, you know, what can I tell you? I'm, I'm a weirdo. <laughs> but I, I think all this business of we're going to get back to normal and things are going to carry on and it, it, everything is is basic. But I, I don't see it. I don't see it. I mean, I'm looking at New York City and it seems like the commercial side of New York City is, gonna, is, is in collapse. They don't know it yet, but, it, but they're dead men walking. And they're in complete denial of it. But I, it's inescapable to me. So anyway, so does that answer your question at all? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very bleak view, of course. But um, yeah, it's, um, I tend to agree with you. Um, like you say, with the climate change, also with the lack of resources at, at some point yeah. will um, drive people to other places. And well, the divides between people are getting so big that I don't see how they could be um, overcome by any, I don't know, by, by, by single actions. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. I don't think it's a question of who's president or who's prime minister. All of that is just chairs on the Titanic, deck chairs on the Titanic. <laughs> so what else can I tell you? Let's talk about Boris some more. Did you see <laughs> what Boris Incorporated? Yes, um, I've seen it. Bad films, but I think great politics. The politics are better and more incorporated than Bulwark, but they're more mine. Yeah, I saw that. Um, a, a lot of the stuff that you wrote, a lot of the... Um, the pieces that you wrote for um, sites like the Huffington Post um, or the Guardian, that's um, very much in line and that comes out of the, um, uh, like uh -huh. the, the whole Bush um, administration years and that sort of yeah. all plays into War Incorporated. I'm curious why you say that it's, it's not a good film. Come on. <laughs> you think it's a good film? I think it's an ambitious film. 
Yeah, I agree. I got it's an ambitious film. I think it had a great script, or a very good script, anyway. It was very, um, the conditions of production were less than ideal. Um, and uh, they overwhelmed us. Um, we just couldn't deal with, we were, I mean, we were underfinanced by about, you know, we only had about a quarter of the financing that we need to make, to make the film properly. We had producers who were completely uninterested in what we were trying to do. Um, I mean, completely. Hmm. They had absolutely no interest. Um, and we had a director who was very inexperienced and overwhelmed by his job, um, which was a matter of Hollywood politics. We had a Serbian director who was supposed to direct the film, who I think is a very good director, though from what I've seen, not a good director of comedy. Mm -hmm. And he wanted to rewrite the script. His rewrite was bad. Um, me and the other writer were willing to compromise with his script, but uh, Cusack was not. And after we had led him to believe that we would compromise, Cusack vetoed that and he quit with only a few weeks left in production till shooting date. And we knew we were such a very marginal production and that if they found out that we had no director with two weeks to go, they would pull the plug. So we grabbed a director who we knew would be willing to do it without even having read the script and brought him over. And he was so over his head. Then you add that to the fact that we had a very, you know, production team that was, I mean, there were some very talented people working on the production. The designer was wonderful. But um, it was a, an Israeli operation operating out of Bulgaria. And they made really crappy straight-to-video movies. And that was, that was their production ethos. And uh, it was a disaster. Three out of four days. <laughs> were just disastrously awful <laughs> failures. And, you know, you had, you had a, a very powerful uh, megalomaniac who was a movie star who was really in, in charge, but not in control. And uh, he wouldn't play the character really as written. Mm -hmm. And so that created problems right there. But I think the main problem was, is you really need to know what you're doing to direct comedy. It's all about timing. It's all about what's framed. It's all, you know, and nobody there really had any experience in how to direct a comedy, least of all the director. Mm. So it's bad. I mean, I would say 80% of the jokes land like lead balloons, as we say. <laughs> I mean, they just flopped. And I don't think it was because the jokes were bad. I think it's because they weren't staged in a funny way with, with, mm -hmm. with a comic timing that would, would deliver them. So they came across as ham-handed, ham obvious, on the nose. The other thing that, yeah, no, that, that's why I think it's not a good film. I find it pretty painful to watch, mm -hmm. um, actually, uh, because I'm cringing at not funny, not funny, not funny. And there's no, nothing worse than an unfunny joke. <laughs> it's interesting to hear the, the, the background of it because, um... I agree that I like a lot of the jokes on paper, but not so much in the execution. It's, it's yeah. like, um, I think if I tell somebody about the film, I'll have a lot of very 
good jokes to tell these people um, yeah. if they watch the yeah. film then not so much and and I also felt that there were sort of the movie was going in a lot of directions at once and I, I sort of just tonally I, I wasn't well, always quite sure where it was you know it was well a, I have to confess we knew that was true and that was part of our anarchic spirit and the fact that we were getting it made without any real oversight and we just love that because we're anarchists and I mean we're not I'm not really an anarchist but we have an anarchic attitude and we just said fuck it yeah we want it to be super serious and really horrible and hilariously funny and highly intelligent and at the same time totally sophomoric um all mixed together and fuck it we don't care that's what we want to do and I honestly believe that kind of thing can work but again it takes skill from directors it takes actors who are all on the same page and know precisely what they're doing it's not an easy thing to pull off and we didn't pull it off but I do think it is pull offable you know I think I think you know our guide our for me and Mark Laner who was the other writer I would say it's probably Terry Southern is a huge influence for us. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of his films were like that. You know, childlessly, you know, I mean, the use of names, for instance, that was something that, that we also did to, to try and use funny names with, you know, double meanings. I was just watching Dr. Strangelove yesterday and I never realized this. I just read about it on the internet that the president's name was, his first name was Merkin. Mm -hmm. McMuffle. And I didn't even know what a Merkin was, but a, a Merkin is a pubic wig. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> right? See what I mean? So, and so similarly, we tried to make funny jokes out of things like um, the sons of the, the son of the, of the uh, dictator that the U.S. installed mm -hmm. in in, in uh, Tur Turkestan. His name is Ukmife. Now, that's pig Latin for fuck me. <laughs> and we, the reason we got, we did this was, I mean, was a friend of mine asked me about Saddam Hussein's sons, Ursay and what's the other one's name? Uh, not sure. Anyway, he said to me, how would you say their names in Pig Latin? Because they already sound like they are Pig Latin. <laughs> so I thought, that's very funny. Let's give this guy a Pig Latin name. So there too, the father's name is Ukfuye. You, son's name is Ukmife, which is fuck me. <laughs> and, you know, that's just, that's childish. You could say it, it doesn't belong in a, in a serious movie, but nothing is more serious than Dr. Strangelove. And Dr. Strangelove is a comedy that ends with the end of the world. Mm. So, you know, this kind of thing can be done. I don't think it's, I don't think it's a sign of um, not knowing what you want to do. I think it's a sign of not having the ability to pull it off. Mm. And you could say we didn't in the writing. I don't know. I, the script used to bring me, bring me to tears of laughter, but the film never has. Mm. So... 
Yeah, and I see the the Doctor Strange love influence uh, with the Ben Kingsley oh. character at the end. I mean, he was yeah, oh sure, and the, and the wheelchair and all of that. Sure, sure, sure. So uh, War Incorporated is very much a product of its of its time. It's very much aimed at the politics of of the Bush years. Um, and would you say that Bullworth is is very much aimed at the politics of the Clinton years, or is that something it that was, is... that's what its intention was? I mean, it turned out to be remarkably prescient. And it's, I mean, it, the irony is, is that Warren, and Warren was, quote, has told me he feels this is ironic also. When we started working on this, the intention was to get it out before the 96 election, which we weren't even close. It didn't come out until late 97 or early 98. Mm. I think it was early, it was May 98 it came out. And he said, I want this to be, I'm going to use names. We're going to, you know, because you know, that was, that's something that nobody ever did in a movie before, mm. as far as I know is use the actual names of living politicians in, in a Hollywood satire. I don't think that's ever been done before. And, uh, uh, and he said, I want it to be disposable. Six months after it comes out, I don't care if anybody ever watches it again. I want it to be really hard hitting. I want it to be really right about now. And I want it to have an impact on the 96th election. None of those things happened. <laughs> Instead, it became, I mean, it still isn't widely known, um, but in political circles, it is. Most people in the political world and in the world of satire uh, know it very well and, and regard it pretty highly. Um, didn't get a big box office. Um, didn't get a whole lot of people seeing it. Um, and people on the street had never heard of it. But it's also, it's 20 years ago. But even then, they had it. And the thing is, is that even now, people still refer to it. Right, Obama referred to it four years ago. As he said, I don't know if you ever caught that, but it was a thing in the mm -hmm. papers. Obama said, sometimes I just want to go Bullworth on these guys. Mm -hmm. And that, that's really what Beatty was dreaming of. He always wanted the term a Bullworth Democrat to become like a, uh, um, Teddy Roosevelt was a Bull Moose Republican. It was like a, a renegade Republican. And that's why it's called Bullworth, actually, and as, a, as a reference to Bull Moose the Bullmoose Party. He wanted people to say, I believe in being a Bullworth Democrat, but it's not, not a Clintonian Democrat, but a real Democrat. Mm -hmm. But he's very loyal to the Democratic Party. I'm not. So that's where it's his film, mm -hmm. much more than my film. I mean, ideologically. In other ways, it's his film, I mean, it's his production. I mean, he, he brought all of that together. I didn't do any of it. I read an interview um, where you said that it's the most, gratis, uh, the most gratifying film of your career, but the, the writing process was horrible. So True. Um, I was curious if you could elaborate on that a little bit. Well, Warren, not with actors, interestingly, but with writers and with other, I mean, it's interesting who he does and who he doesn't behave this way with. But with every writer I've ever heard of, he, he feels the way to pro progress is to have a pugilistic relationship. He wants to fight over everything. And, you know, he's Warren Beatty. And you're not. <laughs> <laughs> so he wins every fight. <laughs> and he knows he's going to win every fight. And on top of that, he plays dirty. He's insulting. He's personally abusive. And uh, that's his way of working. On, on script. And uh, it was very, very difficult. But it was extremely gratifying in the end. 
to have done it. Um, and uh, he doesn't disrespect your work. I mean, he, he will disrespect, I mean, he will say, I mean, I remember one day in particular, he read something, he said, I just want to know, when you wrote this, did you think it was funny? And I said, yeah. He said, were you high? Were you smoking pot or something? And I said, probably. And, and then he said, uh, I think your next film, should, you probably shouldn't do a comedy because I don't think you know what funny is. Now that hurts. Yeah. That really hurts. And you win an argument when you say that to somebody. How can you come back from that? And it's, that's dirty fighting. You know, that's not nice. And it, it was very hard to go through that day after day after day after day after day. But on the other side, he reads something and he likes it and he starts laughing. That makes you feel great. Mm -hmm. But the gratification, this is what came out. I love that movie. And, and I feel like it's his movie enough so that I don't feel like I'm tooting my own horn when I say I love it. I couldn't have done what he did in that movie. I, like I say, I think I added an element, a perspective that nobody else he probably knows could have brought to that film. Certainly not Aaron Sorkin, who wrote a draft of that film. I don't know if you know that, but he mm. did. And that's where I felt like, okay, as far as making Bullworth Bullworth, I'm much better than Aaron Sorkin for that. As I would have been for the Chicago 8, as a matter of fact. The Chicago mm -hmm. 7, as they called it, erroneously. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it was tough. It was tough. And at one point, I mean, you know, he stopped paying me. He gave me a very crappy deal. A fraction of what he was paying himself as writer. Mm. Even though he didn't really write in the sense that I call writing writing. What he did was he criticized what I wrote and made me write again. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but that's typical, uh, you know, you know, in, in, but you know, like, but on the other side, he's wonderful with actors and he's with Vittorio Storaro, the cinematographer, he treats him like a prince. He's absolutely so considerate and everything. And he would never consider in a million years taking a shared cinematography credit, even though He's as involved in every decision about what happens with the camera as he is with the script. But writers are fair game. If you talk to a writer about the script, you're a co-writer. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and and Bullworth, I think it wasn't the first thing that you wrote with him. I mean, you have, I think you did a, like uncredited work on Reds, but you also had a, a couple of other uh, uh, things with him um, that, no. that you wrote for him. No, no, no. We, we, um, he was going to produce a film. He got me a development deal or two in mm. which he was like the producer. But no, I didn't work on any other produced films with him. Well, I mean, I did un, not only uncredited, but unpaid work on um, his disastrous Howard Hughes film. Mm -hmm. um, when I went out to work with him on, on Bullworth, in fact, I started out to work on the Howard Hughes film, mm -hmm. which had already been in development for 20 years. Mm. And uh, year by year, he changed it. And in my opinion, made it worse every year. Uh, and I would say, I think this is worse. And he would argue with me until I gave up. Um, 
And then I would say, well, if you're insisting on doing it that way, then I think you need to do this, 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 and this. And I would give him a lot of suggestions and notes. And he incorporated a huge amount of them. But I knew it was, he was heading nowhere with the script. And I think he got nowhere. I think it was a real non-entity. It's a story. Mm. It's a shame because he started with something really interesting. Really, that film could have been terrific if he had stuck to the original premise, which I'm not sure whose it was. Smart Money says it was uh, Bo Burlingham's. No, 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 not Bo Burlingham. What's his name? Um, Bo Goldman? Guy who did, Bo Goldman, right, 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 Bo Goldman. But he never, whenever you read a script with Warner, it never has a cover page with an author on it. <laughs> when, when Sorkin read the draft of Bullworth I had written with Warren, he didn't know that I had worked on it at all. It was a complete shock to him when, that I was involved in the project. Mm. Um, and I only knew it was his draft because he puts AS next to the page number. And I put two and two together. <laughs> <laughs> well, it could have been Annabelle Sorkin. <laughs> could have been. But I knew that, I knew that Warren, because they were working together on a, on a script that never got made about, a, they went to court, I think Aaron sued him for not paying him about a, an astronaut. It was also a bad idea for a movie, I think. Uh, sea, of, uh, sea of Storms, I think it's called. Um, so I knew Sorkin was in the mix. Did, did any of the things that Aaron Sorkin worked on remain in the movie? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, he had a very, a very positive effect. On, on the script in terms of what was left. Um, he understood the mechanics of writing comedy much better than I did. And there are some real nuts and bolts things in terms of keeping the focus together that he added that were very instrumental. Um, the entire conversation in the C-SPAN truck, for instance, mm -hmm. was added by him. Almost all of the lines for Feldman, who was a friend of his, Josh Molina, he got him the job, were written by Sorkin. One really key moment, I think, was, um, I don't know if you've seen in the After Hours Club. Mm -hmm. I mean, mind you, the idea of going to an After Hours Club was mine. Um, I don't think Aaron Sorkin ever would have dreamed of that in his wildest dreams. But the speech that Murphy gives in the After Hours Club, where he says, can you just explain to me what's going on? You did this, you did this, you did this. You... That was a very important technique for pulling the, pre the events together so that the audience could understand where the story had been and where it was going. Mm -hmm. It was very important and sophisticated. I don't know how sophisticated it was, but it was more sophisticated than I was back then. Um, way of... of putting the film on track with an audience. And it, that was completely Sorkin. And then some of the jokes that people seem to like that I particularly don't like, um, or don't particularly like, like the crispy crab cakes line. Um, um, Miss, can you be honest? Do you have any more of those crispy crab cakes? Now, to me, don't spare my feelings. <laughs> don't spare my, why would anybody say don't spare my feelings about whether or not they're crispy crab cakes? I thought that was phony and it never made me laugh, but that's all Sorkin. Um, but his the political viewpoint he had was disastrously awful, as far as I was concerned. And we took out all of that, page after page, threw it out, threw it out, and went back to the original script. Um, he also 
I shouldn't say, I don't, I don't know for sure that it was Sorkin. I just know it happened between when I left and when I came back and when Sorkin was working on it. We had a lot more issues than just insurance in terms of, he really made it about insurance mm. in a way that I think was also good for keeping the audience clear on one thing. Uh, it was less sophisticated politically than what we had before, but it was probably the right decision. Mm. It's interesting because in terms of the, in terms of the tone, um, I could never bring Aaron Sorkin and Bullworth together because the, the Sorkin is so much of an idealist when it comes to politics. Um, and, and his movies are always, when, he, when he's doing politics, it's always about, you know, doing the ideal version, the right thing, and this is what politics should look like. And Bulworth is none of that. So yeah. um, I was very surprised to, to, to read that he was involved. Yeah. Um, also, I, if we're talking about this stuff, James Toback, whose name is now, you know, you don't speak his name in public, mm. but um, he contributed a good deal to the first act uh, of the film. He actually was the writer uh, up until they went to California. And everything I was doing in those first 20 pages were, were rewrites of stuff that Jimmy did. Then Jimmy disappeared and I became the writer. But up until that moment, I was sort of a development guy and I had no writing contract. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I became the writer, I mean, I remember when Warren, when Jimmy was the writer and Warren was ripping him to pieces, ripping him to pieces. We were having breakfast in this place on the Upper East Side in New York. And Warren was just telling him, this is crap, this is shit, this is hard. And then Warren went to the bathroom and I said to Jimmy, how do you take it? He said, oh, I don't take it personally. If you were writing it, you'd be getting it. And I'd be watching. You get it. And sure enough, as soon as Jimmy was gone, <laughs> I became the writer and he was saying all that stuff to me. And uh, I never got an official story of what happened to Jimmy or why he left or on what terms he left. It was just that he was there one day and he wasn't there the next day. But it's true, the stuff he was writing was tonally wrong. It was all wrong. And uh, it did not have... I mean, actually, the, the real tone of Bullworth was me copying Elaine May in Heaven Can Wait, mm -hmm. right? Bullworth is yeah. just like the football player in Heaven Can Wait. He's an innocent. He's not a firebrand, he's an innocent. And Toback was trying to make him a firebrand. Mm -hmm. And that would never work. Warren could never play a firebrand. He's just too diffident to ever be a firebrand. He's not earnest, mm -hmm. he's ironic. That's, he's, a, he's a child of the 50s and 60s. And, uh, you know, they don't, they don't make speeches. Not really. They just, they'll say what's obvious. See, that was the idea for Bullworth. His honesty was simply just to say what everybody knows is true and doesn't have the courage to say. Mm. There wasn't any great insight. It was, come on, let's be serious here. Mm. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, one of my favorites is that, is that TV debate scene. Where says, come on, let's be serious. You're, why are you here? You're getting paid, right? You're getting paid a lot of money to do this interview. You don't care about the news. You care about your gig. And everybody knows that's true. They just don't say it. 
they don't want it. They want to believe in a charade. Mm. And it is a charade. American politics is a charade. And Trump's genius is, is to fully, fully, I mean, Reagan sort of understood it too, but Trump really understands it. It's a reality show. Mm. If you play it like a reality show, you can win. Doesn't matter what you say, it matters how loud you say it, how often you say it, yeah. how convincingly you say it. Yeah, and to keep people glued to the screen yeah. or to What's gonna whatever next? medium it is. Yeah, it's, it's just an entertainment vehicle. Yeah. I was like everybody else, of course, I'm watching the election process and I just said to a friend today, said, I don't want to watch this show anymore. Please just give me the spoiler of how it ends. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh, I'm afraid to hear how it ends. I'm still hoping that, I mean, it's funny, these Democratic pundits and campaign people have been selling us fake hope for months, and we keep buying it. And now they're saying the same thing. They're saying, oh, he's behind in Pennsylvania, but he's going to win. We're confident he's going to win. Well, they were confident it was going to be a blue wave three days ago, and there wasn't. Mm. So do I believe them or not? I hope to hell they're right. I hope to hell they were right then. But what I know is 67 million Americans voted for fascists. That's scary. To me, that's the overriding fact of this election. Yeah. More people voted for Trump this time than last time. It's one thing to say we didn't know what we were getting into. Can't say that anymore. Yeah. You've seen it. You've seen him at work and you've, you've heard everything he has to and say. If you look at what's going on now and you don't reject that. Yeah. No. No. That's why I think there's going to be a collapse. And that's the interesting part because in a way he represents the American people, at least half the American people in a way. Yeah. He does. He does. The problem is, is the American people rule the world. Mm. Right? If there were anything like a real democracy on this planet, people in Somalia would get to vote on who the American president is just as much as I do. Because it affects them just as much as it affects me. More maybe. Right? But they don't. That's, that's what imperialism means. A certain group of people, the people who live between the Pacific and the Atlantic and north of the Rio Grande, get to decide who the most powerful person on the planet is. And nobody else gets to decide that. Mm. But everybody else is following what's happening because it, you know, it's affecting them. Because they know how, it, how seriously it will affect them. Yeah. Yeah. But from a European point of view, um, people here often talk about how um, this kind of power that America has is really dwindling, how um, America is no longer going to be that kind of power in, in, in a global sense. Yeah, um, when? Yeah. When? Well. <laughs> how many troops has Germany, how many troops has Austria got stationed around the world? <laughs> <laughs> how many troops has Austria got inside of Austria? <laughs> how, many, you know, how many troops has Russia got stationed around the world? Mm. America is the overwhelming material power on this planet. Economically, which is what undergirds that, it is eroding. But it's still, you know, excuse me, you could have closed every single business in Austria and it wouldn't cause a world depression. Mm. So the, I think this business of it's the day, I mean, yeah, I think America 
is certainly declining. Um, but it's not clear to me how the world system operates. I mean, you know, I think, again, this is one of the kind of weird truths of, of, of Trump is, is saying, oh, yeah, everything, you have social democracy in Europe, fine. Try paying for that if you're paying what we pay for, for the guns that you use, that you train against Russia. Mm. Right? All those missiles, you don't pay for them, we pay for them. Now you start paying for them and see how, how much money you have for free health care. <laughs> and uh, there's truth to that. There's truth to that. The American, you know, if you believe that the arms, that militarism has a purpose other than enriching arms manufacturers, um, uh, it's not clear to me that it does at all. In fact, I suspect that it doesn't. But if you believe that, if you think that it, we'd all be speaking Russian if we didn't have an army, then, then social democracy in Europe is, is, a, is, is, a, is, is a mirage. It's being paid for by American fascism. Mm. Not to mention by the suffering of people in Africa and Asia. I think this is where the, the, the problem lies that all of the countries, all of the continents, everybody, it's all connected. Nobody is an island. Um, and that's, that's like in the 20th century, um, it was just this thinking of, you know, this country and that country, and you have a, you know, a couple of, of countries on this side of the Iron Curtain and another. Um, but all of that is dissolving and um, economically and in terms just of the people culturally, there's so much mixture between all kinds of cultures, all kinds of countries. It, it becomes obsolete to think in terms of, um, you know, this is the one power that dictates um, everything else because you couldn't take anything else out of the equation. Right, no, and, 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 but in the same way, I think it's why it's ridiculous to say, well, we have to protect American democracy against Russian oligarchy. Trump and Putin and Clinton and Khashoggi, he was the one who got murdered, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the guy who murdered him, they're all in the same club. That's what Bulwer says. It's a club, let's have a drink. They pretend to be enemies to some extent, but they're the same. They're the same. And, 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 and the same goes for Macron and Boris Johnson. They're all in the same club. There are no national interests. It's a world system. They're just different neighborhoods. Mm. And I think that's, to me, that was the really radical message of Bulworth that Warren accepted because he, I think he, he, I don't think he ever would have gone there on his own without me to that view. But I think when he hears me say it, he knows he thinks it's true. As they say, the, the system's not broken, it's rigged. Mm. And it's this knowledge and this sense which propels so much of Trump's success. Because he's able to say it's all rigged against me. Well, of course, it's not rigged against him. Uh, but it is rigged. And mm. people know it's rigged.
Yeah, and I think he plays to some kind of need that people want to see somebody who disrupts the system that somebody would exactly. sort of undermine, even though, of course, he's part of that system, even though he only yeah. acts in his own self-interest. Completely in self-interest, only in his own. Self and he's saying he's going against an elite, and of course he's part of that same elite, so um, yeah. doesn't make any sense. But yeah, he, he, the role he plays is something that appeals to people. That's the appeal of Bullworth. I think it's not not even the fact that he's telling the truth, but the fact that there is somebody who's disrupting um, the entire charade of of the election process and. Um, you know everything from all the the fundraisers yeah. and the debates and people find it refreshing mm. some people do people who have an idea of who he is and how much he's filled with hate you know uh, my co-writer on on uh, war incorporated mark laner who's a wonderful novelist um he was saying to me the other day people don't care anything about whether trump is lying or not lying they see a rageful, shamed person. And they say, that's me. Mm -hmm. He's my guy. He's like me. He gets me. He's an angry bully. That's what I want. He wants to smash somebody in the face. That's what I want. Mm. And that was Mussolini's appeal too. People adored Mussolini for that. And people adore Trump for it. It's kind of like the Peter Finch character in Network, in a way, right? The guy who rails yes. against everything and says, and I've had what? enough of this. And you know something? I was one of the very few people at that time who said, that's a fascist movie. Mm -hmm. I hate that movie. <laughs> I, think it, I think it is so anti-democratic, so elitist um, in its populism. Mm. It basically says the people are stupid. And uh, I hate that. I don't like that movie. It has its moments, though. <laughs> I think when, when Faith Dunaway comes after 10 seconds, that's really funny. <laughs> <laughs> I understand that you also um, had a lot of talk about the ending of Bullworth, that that wasn't quite sure, um, if, if, like the ending that we see, if that was going to be the ending. Yeah, it's, it's a disputed, of, well, that's definitely true. That's not disputed. Um, but Warren disputes uh, my re memory, which is we didn't even know he was ever going to get shot. Now, Warren claims he always knew he might not have told people. I think he's lying, honestly, about that. Or misremembering, perhaps, I should say. My recollection is that I had one ending, Warren had another ending, and uh, uh, Sorkin had a third ending. And the fact of the matter is, well, I don't know what Aaron thought, but I know that Warren and I didn't like any of those endings. Warren didn't like, he liked his best, but he didn't like it. I liked mine best, but I didn't like it. We both hated Sorkin's. Um, and we said, well, we just have to start shooting and we'll figure it out. We just did not know how the movie was going to end at all. None of, the, none, none of those involved him getting shot. We wrote a couple of versions in which an attempt is made on his life and he, he single-handedly captures the would-be assassin himself, oh. which catapults him to international stardom as a hero. And that's, that's the real reason he wins all the elections. We had a version like that. And there was a car chase and he was shooting a machine gun out of the, 
out of the through the roof of his limos um, and was going down Hollywood Boulevard driving on the sidewalks. Um, I wrote that and Warren quite rightly looked at it and said, this is terrible. We can't use this. We're throwing all of this out. Um, and then, um, you know, and, and funnily, I mean, the set was never a happy place. The sets of Warren's movies are almost never happy places. He's, uh, he's very secretive. He doesn't tell people what he wants to do. He keeps them there waiting for hours and hours. They get a lot of overtime. He's usually in a bad mood. And nobody read the whole script. Nobody in the crew had read the whole script. You're not allowed to. You just get the pages for the day. And a couple times people said to me, I hope you're going to kill him at the end of this. <laughs> um, and, but we never, we, we had the tone of the film wrong. We thought, you might notice that Frank Capra the third was one mm -hmm. of the producers. The reason for that is Warren wanted people to associate this film with Frank Capra the first. Mm -hmm. We thought we were making a Capra-esque film that it was light and playful. Um, it wasn't until the addition of the music and looking at what we had with Storaro's cinematography that we realized it was actually quite a dark film. It was funny, but it wasn't lighthearted. Mm. It felt like life and death really was an element not just a, uh, uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, a conceit. Mm -hmm. So we never really considered it a possibility. We felt the audience would feel totally betrayed if he would get shot at the end. And then the producer, this is my recollection, and Warren in the end didn't like this guy, and he would never admit to me that this is where the idea came from. But the producer, Peter Jan Brugge, said to me, uh, what if we shoot him in the end, but he doesn't die? Because the real problem with all our endings was how do you solve the fact that politics is broken? You can't. How do you get a happy ending out of the fact that this is all a pile of shit? You're not going to have him get elected president, right? What are you going to do? And we couldn't come up with anything that felt that something that wasn't utterly contrived. And then we said, well, if he's shot and he survives, that's the happy ending. You don't have to deal with the political issues. And I thought, this is genius. And we ran off to Warren and we told him, me and Peter together, and Warren said, yeah, yeah, I like it, I like it. And that was, and so the script was, and we didn't write the end of that script until we went on a Christmas hiatus. And a, a scene was written in which after he shot, and this is why he looked so dead in that shot, right? He looks dead as a doornail on the street, right? Because we were going to give you a surprise reversal. Mm -hmm. He was, the next scene was going to be him in the hospital, awake, recovering, surrounded by all the funny people. And then he gets a bouquet of flowers with a note and says, we'll always be watching close to you, Crockett. Mm -hmm. Right? And that was like the, the dark twist that saved it from being just totally sappy. And it was a very good scene. And they shot it. And they, and 
several months after the shooting was done, Warren said, I have a rough cut. I want you to come out to California to see it. So I flew out there on his dime. Those were the good old days. People paid me to fly to California. That doesn't happen anymore. Um, <laughs> and uh, he said, all right, I want you to look at it. He showed it to me with that ending. And I said, it's good. It's good. It's really funny. The movie is great. I love it. And he said, okay, now I want you to watch this in there. And he showed me, and which had been found, as he put it, I don't know if he put it that way, but I would put it that way, by the editor, Bobby Jones, who you may or may not know, has an Academy Award as a screenwriter. Mm -hmm. um, and Bobby Jones says, why don't we just cut out that last scene and just end with Baraka on the street? saying you got to be a, a spirit, you can't be no ghost. Mm. And so he showed me that, and I was devastated. And I said, this is it. This is brilliant. Now, mind you, I was absolutely convinced that he's not dead. I was convinced that he was hovering between life and death. Mm. And we don't know if is Bullworth going to make it or not. And if you turn the volume up, you can hear Baraka saying over black between the shooting and the scene outside the hospital, hold on, Bullworth, hold on. Mm -hmm. But it's not, I, I beg Beatty to turn that up in the mix, but he wouldn't do it. He likes that a lot of people think he's dead. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted everyone in the audience to not know if he's dead or alive. To me, that's how you end that movie. And then you have Baraka say, that's not what's important. He could be dead and be a spirit, or he could be alive and be a ghost. Mm -hmm. That's what counts. Um, and, uh, and I love that ending. The studio hated it. Warren loved it. Um, but he but you know, my attitude then was, how can you make this picture and have the conclusion be, if you stand up and tell the truth, you'll get killed? That's a terrible message to send. Mm. But now I look at that and say, what was I? It's, it's true. <laughs> it's undeniably true. It happened to MLK. It happened to Malcolm X. It happened to everybody who ever tells the truth in this country. They all get killed. It happened to Fred Hampton or driven out of the country. So I don't know why I was so opposed to that, but I was. Um, mm. I was desperate to have it be that message I said. Whether you're alive or dead matters less than whether you're a spirit or not. Because I do think that's, I think that's really the message of the film. Mm. To me, that's what I call, what, what they call the controlling idea of the film. Or as Bullworth himself says, quoting Martin Luther King earlier, if you have nothing to live for, if you have nothing to die, you're willing to die for, you have nothing you're willing to live for. Mm. And he started with that idea in the very, very beginning. That's what I want this movie to be about. Well, in that sense, Bullworth is actually an idealistic movie because it has that oh. sort of ideal that you have yeah, to yeah, have. No, to me, the, I consider him, I think, to me, Aaron Sorkin is much more of a cynic than I am. To me, he's no idealist. He's an opportunist. He, he, he uses tropes and cliches about American greatness, which are utter myths, and says this is what we should aspire to rather than exposing them as lies. They've always been lies. They're nothing but lies. There's nothing noble about the fucking American experiment. Never has been anything noble about the American experiment. Politicians are not well-meaning people who get sidetracked by bad deals. They're crooks. They're liars. They're cheats. They're the scum of the fucking earth. 
That's what Bowler says, and it's the truth. And it's not cynical because it says there is a better world possible. Mm. You can reject these people. Sorkin says if we would only live up to our ideals, everything would be beautiful. That's a cynical lie that he's selling to people while he's counting his millions. Hmm. While he was doing his fucking West Wing that said Clinton, Bartlett, whatever that character's name was, is agonizing over every de death of someone killed by a drone. He's starving half a million Iraqis to death. Hmm. He's starving half a million Iraqi children to death. And his secretary of state is saying it's worth it. And Aaron Sorkin has him crying over the loss of one person at the embassy where they had to shoot a missile. That's not idealism. That's not idealism. That's cynicism. <laughs> yeah, I remember that episode. <laughs> yeah. I shouldn't say, say such things about Aaron. But he made himself fair game when, when the writers were on strike and he said, I'm more important to the writers' union than the writers' union is to me. And uh, that's, uh, that's when I felt, okay, I don't have to be nice to Aaron anymore. Well, I, I always feel that, especially if, if um, you write something that's on a political level, then it's fair game to discuss the political ideas behind that and to say that, well, I reject those ideas. That is, um, well, that must be part of the process. It must be allowed to say, well, I don't believe in that, what you're telling yeah. me. So, well. You don't normally see that happen, at least over here. Yeah. The actual political content is almost never discussed. It's the style, it's the form, it's mm -hmm. the wittiness. And the box office. Yeah, the criticisms of, of Chicago 7 over political issues uh, are completely disregarded by the mainstream. It's like, well, why would you bring that up? It's, it's a great turn by Sasha Baron Cohen. That's all we care about. Yeah. <laughs> the fact you've completely eviscerated the meaning of those people in their lives. Nobody cares about that. No, I always find it interesting to look at the political level um, of a film, even films that aren't inherently political, but they sort of tackle um, ideas, tackle history, that sort of thing. Um, and I think they always uh, are created in a context that um, they, they react to something, for example, that's going on in the world, they react to something in society, um, whatever. I, I've always find it interesting to talk about movies on that level. And I agree with you, even here in Europe, it's not, um, you don't find that a lot in, in, in film criticism anymore. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're post-history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. if you had to, to write a movie like Bullworth these days, what would it look like? Well, that's tough. That's tough. You know, Warren has often talked about doing a Bullworth too, which I've never been able to understand how you would do that. Mm -hmm. um, because, I mean, I watched Bullworth during the campaign and for the first time ever i felt it was dated mm -hmm. because i felt bernie sanders has said everything that bulwark said in terms of political vision that was supposed to be so shocking he said socialism 20 years ago you literally could not say the word socialism in mainstream political discourse it was shocking to say i'm talking about socialism let's face it it's not single payer it's socialized medicine um, and, uh, but Bernie says these things. I mean, not actually because single pair isn't really socialized medicine the way they had once had it in England before they destroyed it. And then 
the other thing is 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 the unfiltered the shockingness of unfiltered language uh, and impropriety Trump has done. So none of this stuff is shocking anymore. You take away the shock value of Bulworth, you got nothing. You know, I think it's focus on the failures of the Democratic Party to deal with racism. Mm. I think it's understanding that people were, as Larry, Bull, as Larry King says, uh, sick of the bullshit. It was prescient. But as, as a work of art, I think it probably is finally getting dated. I just don't think it can really work for people who weren't alive then to enjoy now. Mm. So I don't, I don't, I mean, I, I, I said, I mean, what would a Bullworth be now? When I said when Trump got elected, I said satire's dead. Mm. You can't satirize this guy. He's, he's beyond anything you can make up. Yeah, nothing can be so absurd that it sort of tops what, what he yeah. says. There are actually moments, I think, in, 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 in well, what he's saying or in his campaign or in his interviews where I actually have to double check if I'm watching uh, something yeah. that's supposed to be funny or if I'm watching the real thing. Yeah, yeah. No, I just, I just saw something from The Onion the other day where in last, uh, in last ditch effort, Trump claims to be, uh, it, uh, he calls himself a serial rapist. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, he could do that. He could say, vote for me, I'm a serial rapist. He, it's not inconceivable. <laughs> I mean, you do have interviews where he says, you know, grab him by the pussy and everything. Yeah, so oh, it's, yeah. it's, well, it's very close. It's, uh. It's, it's kind of interesting that the hero of Bulworth in, in today's political landscape has almost become the villain. Well, yeah, but he's not, that's what I'm saying, he's not Trump. The difference is that Bulworth tells the truth. Yeah. And Trump, Trump just plays somebody telling the truth who's not telling the truth. Trump never tells the truth. And the thing about Bulworth is he always tells the truth. And the other thing is, is Bulworth does nothing to promote himself. He thinks mm -hmm. he's dying. Everything he does is completely selfless. Whereas Trump is pure self-promotion. Mm. He's only self-promotion. He has no political ideals at all. So they really are antithetical. Mm. They're, the, they're, they're polar opposites, even though in surface ways they appear to be similar. Mm. They're really not. That's true. But the fact that he's acting, that he's playing that role, sort of makes it hard to distinguish between the two, yes. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, and, and the other thing is, Bulworth always is self-effacing. Mm -hmm. Right? He says, you're never going to get rid of guys like me. If you keep doing this, you're never going to get rid of guys like me. Right? And Trump is the opposite. Trump is, I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest president who ever lived. I've done more for black people. Right? <laughs> yeah. Trump says, I've done more for black people than anybody else. Right? And Bulworth says, I've been selling you out for 20 years. Why do you keep voting for him? No. <laughs> yeah, if Trump says something like "you'll get rid of me," then it's, it's supposed to be a threat. Like, I'll, I'm going to leave this country if if you're not. And never come back. I, he, you know who really is like Trump? And I told I called Warren at the last minute, and I said, "You should market it like this." He was very offended. Howard Hughes in Warren's last film is like Trump, very much like Trump. I don't know if you saw that film. 
Yeah, I've seen it. Rules don't apply. Yeah. It's as bad as its title. Um, <laughs> but uh, that character is very Trumpian. Mm -hmm. as, as Hughes was, I think. Hughes really was a very Trumpian character. Um, and he was uh, almost as fake. I mean, he was a terrible businessman, for instance. Every business he ran, he ran into the ground. And he was thought of as America's richest man, mm. most successful businessman. He was a complete fake. It was just all PR. And he was obsessed with PR. And you get snippets of that in, in, in Warren's film. But there's, it's never pulled together thematically. Mm. As actually, nothing is pulled together thematically in that film. That's, that's its big problem. But that's my thing. I'm all about theme. I'm all about thematic coherence. To me, that's, that's the most interesting aspect of the film to me. Mm -hmm. Usually, not any film. That's not true. I shouldn't say that. Not of any film, but of any straight narrative film. Mm -hmm. Now, most of the things that you've written are uh, very much in a political, um, in, in, in a political world. Um, not just the films Bullworth or War Incorporated, Farmed and Dangerous, uh, but also the the op-ed pieces that uh, I, I mentioned earlier. Um, as I was very surprised when I saw that the um, the Lemon Sisters, um, you, you, which you wrote, your first film, which is not political at all and it's it's a film well it's a feminist film you would know it from the finished version mm. but it is actually a feminist film it's a film about women's friendships being the most important thing in their lives mm. um and but you don't understand i've written a lot of films that are not i'll write anything that anybody pays me to write i shouldn't say that that's not quite true <laughs> but i'll write almost anything that anybody pays me to write <laughs> and um And Lemon Scissors was the first thing anybody paid me to write. And it was Diane's, because I was just trying to get a writing job. After, after Reds, when I didn't get any credit, I didn't deserve any credit, but I wrote a lot of the dialogue in Reds, a very large amount of the dialogue. Almost all of the explicitly political dialogue in Reds was written by me. Mm -hmm. But that's not writing. That's not, that's not screen credit writing. And Elaine May, who really did write enormous swaths of that film also got no credit but she didn't want it but i couldn't get any work after that um i thought i was going to go back to being a high school teacher and uh i just kept bugging warren and diane have you got anything i can do have you got anything i can do and they didn't and then diane said well i do have this one thing that will probably never get made um it's where me and my two real-life best friends are going to play three best friends, and I want us to have equal parts, and Hollywood will hate that because they're not stars, and I am. Hmm. So we'll probably never get it made, but I'll pay you some money to write it. So I wrote it, and she paid me, and then it sort of sat around. Nobody was interested in it, and then there was a writer's strike, and Diane had a big hit with Little Drummer Girl right before the writer's strike, and they needed scripts because they couldn't hire anybody to write any new scripts, so they needed to find... And they said to Diane, what have you got lying around? She said, I have this. I've always wanted to do it. And Harvey Weinstein, mm. the infamous Harvey Weinstein, said, we'll make this. I love it. It's so sweet. It's so gentle. <laughs> <laughs> well, he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Just like me. Um, and, um, and then they, they made it. But... It was during a writer's strike and they wanted 
rewrites. Uh, the director wanted rewrites, and they couldn't hire a writer. She got her husband to write it under the table, do a rewrite, mm-hmm. and they ruined it. Ruined it. They, they, they turned what was really a very sweet and very feminist script into some awful star vehicle, I guess you would call it that. I don't know. It was a mess. Um, and then the worst part was the production was very uh, unprofessional. Uh, and they blew the budget in like the first week. And the bonding company came in and they said you had to cut out two out of every five pages of the rest of the script. And so they decided, look, the audience will probably care more about the relationships with the men, so we'll cut out all the scenes with the women. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, was the whole point of the film. Yeah. <laughs> and so they put it together, and they, they, put it, they put together a rough cut, and they showed it to an audience, and they had no idea that, it was, that these women were even friends. So then they hired some women comedians, talented women. Um, actually, Mo... I feel terrible. I can't remember her name. Very talented woman who write these scenes for children that were flashbacks to establish that they were friends. Uh-huh. Um, but you know, you can't you can't establish characters in flashbacks mm-hmm. if you've already you know. <clears throat> and they didn't have the other scenes. They never shot them. And the actresses refused to work with the director anymore, so they couldn't do reshoots. Uh-huh. So they tried to cobbled together and it was a miserable flop um but it had moments mm. it had moments and i've never i'm incapable of writing without a political point of view and the primacy of women's friendships over their relationships with men in 1982 when i wrote it mm-hmm. was pretty advanced and I got it from my wife. I mean, my wife is a feminist psychotherapist, and she had written a book about women's friendships, and I drew on that rather heavily. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it's wrong to say it's completely apolitical. But anything that I'm given to write, I will put some sort of political spin on because that's the way I see the world. And after Bullworth, I got lots of jobs because I got an Academy Award nomination. So I was offered all kinds of jobs which were ill-considered, that I was completely inappropriate for, that never got made into movies, but I got paid. And now I have a pension because of that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I put up with all those insults on Bulwark. Mm-hmm. At one point, I was a very, very bad day, and I called, I mean, I left my wife and my two very young children at home in New York, and I was in California with Warren for month after month. And we basically started over every day. I mean, we just never seen, and I was getting paid for one draft, and we had written dozens of drafts. And I said, you know, are you going to pay me more? So we still haven't finished the first draft. And, uh, <laughs> um, and I was talking to my wife and she said, why don't you just come home? You don't need this. And I said, are you kidding? if I can hang on, if I can, if I can ride this tiger to the end, I could get an Academy Award nomination because his writers usually do. Um, and that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. And again, I was lucky. There were other writers who could have gotten credit. Um, not really legitimately, but these things aren't always legitimate. Um, but Warren wanted me to be the only other credit because I was an unknown. So it would seem like his contribution was important. If it had been Warren Beatty and Aaron Sorkin, everybody would have said, oh, Aaron Sorkin really wrote mm-hmm. If it had been Warren Beatty and Jimmy Toback, people would have said, oh, Jimmy Toback really wrote it. But 
Warren Beatty and who? Never heard of him. Okay, that's good for Warren. He's the writer. Um, so he talked those other guys into not taking credit. And so after that film came out and I got an Academy Award nomination, people were just throwing money at me for stuff that like, you know, they wanted to do a remake of a William Powell, Myrna Loy movie. That was such a bad movie. The only good thing about it was William Powell and Myrna Loy, which is the one thing they were not going to be able to recreate. <laughs> <laughs> And they paid me like $300,000 to write that thing. And it was, and they said, don't change it too much because we love it so much. Just kind of update it. That's easy money. That was such easy money. And there were three or four of those things over a period of five or six years. And, and they all paid health and pension benefits. And thanks to the union, I get a decent pension now. Mm-hmm. But even that, even that stupid thing, I put politics into it. I put class politics into it. It was, mm-hmm. there was some satire about the rich people in it. Because I just, that's, that's who I am. I read that you have a new script um, that's going to be produced. Um, I, I assume once the pandemic is over in, I don't know how many years, uh, the last I, I place on earth. I, I'm never someone who's gonna, who will say it's going to be produced. There is a director and a production company that would like to get it produced. Um, I, just, I think it's a very, very good script. I'm extremely proud of it. Um, there are a number of difficulties in getting it made. Uh, whether it will actually get made or not, I do not know. So I wouldn't say it's being produced, but yes, I have a new script. It's now a year old, actually, about Germans. In mm-hmm. fact, all of the main characters are Germans. Um, but it probably has to be done in English, which is silly and embarrassing, <laughs> but uh, it has a certain comic style that I just don't think you could, would work in Germany. It takes place on uh, an island in the Galapagos Islands, based on a true story. And there are several competing productions. I don't know where they are, um, but ours is the only one that's funny, I'm sure. I put mm-hmm. money on it. It's generally considered to be a kind of terrifying and spooky and, you know, and somebody's, some woman is writing a novel about it also, this true story. And I read a little description of how it's haunted her and all this stuff. And to me, it's the most, to, to me, the only, that Greek guy, I can't say his name, but the guy who did Lobster and, and, uh, and The Favorite and uh, uh, Dogtooth, You know who I'm talking about, that director? No. Oh, wonderful director. Um, you saw The Favorite, right? Mm, I think the so. The Emma Watts, Emma Stone thing with the, you know, the Queen and Olivia, uh, what's her name, Hussey? Is that her name? Oh, no, I've, I've never seen that. I was thinking of, an, oh, of a different film. check it out. It's great. Talk about political satire. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, he would be perfect to do this. So I, I like my director. I hope he gets it made. And, and I cooked it up with him. I'm very loyal to him. It was something we really cooked up together. Um, but it's, it's not a, it's not a thriller. It's, I think people, people tend to think of it as some sort of mystery murder thriller. It's not, it's an absurdist mm-hmm. fable. And I don't see how you can watch it. I mean, watch, there's a documentary about it on Netflix, which is also a problem because we don't have the rights to that. And I don't know if we need the rights to that. <laughs> um, 
But you look at that, and my wife and I are watching, and we're in hysterics. Uh, because it's just so absurd. Anyway, yeah, and I'm working on a script now, which again has virtually no chance of ever being produced. I mean, the other one has a chance, because it has a director and a producer. This is probably unproducible, uh, about the life of, of Thelonious Monk, the musician. Oh, wow. That has been a passion project of mine for about 30 years. Um, and I've never had the courage to write it. And then during the pandemic, I thought, well, what have I got to lose? I might be dead soon. Um, so I started writing it and I'm doing it very slowly. I mean, I've really been writing it since the beginning of the pandemic and I still have another 30 pages to go or so. And I love it. I love it, but I can't imagine. I mean, first of all, why does a white guy get to write a script about Thelonious Monk nowadays? That doesn't seem right. Um, Secondly, I don't know really who the audience is for a film about no. Thelonious Monk. Um, third, I've taken a very fractured mosaic style approach. It's really not a biopic at all. It's more like a jazz music video. Mm -hmm. So I think all of those, plus the fact that so many people are trying to do it, Thelonious Monk film, though I don't know how far any of them have gotten. The impression is not far at all. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm working on that. I haven't completely given up being a writer, even though I consider myself primarily retired. Even as a teacher, I consider myself primarily retired. And I've been primarily a teacher for the past 10 years. I haven't mm -hmm. had an agent. I, I had cancer about 10 years ago. And it happened at the same time that there was a writer's strike, or actually back to back when there was a writer's strike, and at the same time that my agent for the past, for the previous 10 years, retired from being an agent, mm -hmm. and at the same time that her agency, William Morris, merged with Endeavor, and they were shedding agents and clients. And I thought, well, if I'm gonna get back in this game, I'm gonna really have to claw my way in. And I thought, you know, I just survived cancer. I'm 60 years old. I'm really happy that I can go outside and walk in the sun. Mm. And I have enough money in my pension to live reasonably comfortably. Why would I do that? Why would I go out into that charnel house and try and sell myself again to these people who are basically not interested in what I do? Um, and I'm not interested in what they do. <laughs> And so I didn't. I never really tried to get another agent. Uh, I haven't been writing a lot of stuff. If something appeals to me, but I've been spending most of my energy doing international screenplay labs and teaching, which mm -hmm. I love. That I love. I always wanted to be a teacher, really. Uh, writing screenplays really came out of wanting to tell history to a larger audience. Um, I just fell into reds. I had no intention of being a screenwriter. I was a, I was a high school teacher, and that's all I really ever wanted. That's all I wanted to be at that point. I had no ambition to mm -hmm. be a screenwriter. And then I just landed this job as sort of a comic, color commentator and fifth wheel on the production of Bullworth and the writing of Bullworth as sort of an assistant writer, um, somebody who knew a lot about the Russian Revolution and knew a lot about John Reed. Um, and then I became a real writer's assistant to Elaine May because she took over and she didn't know anything about any of that stuff. And I became her history brain. 
And then lo and behold, there I am, this guy who had never intended that name, working for Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson and Gene Hackman and Warren Stapleton. And it's like, I want to try and parlay this into some sort of career, I suppose. And also the school I had been teaching at collapsed while I was working on Reds. So mm -hmm. you couldn't go back to that job. Um, plus, you know, you sell one screenplay, that was five years worth of teaching sound. So, yeah. I became a screenwriter. And you also wrote a novel during that time, right? Um, yes, I Junk did. on the Hill? Yes, that was my first act of self-sabotage. When, <laughs> when I got off of Reds, instead of immediately trying to get onto a picture, I took a year to write a novel and disappear from, you know, any of the contacts I might have had. Mm -hmm. um, but I enjoyed that very much and uh, that novel is i don't know if you read it that that novel is oh. about the school where that i was teaching it before i went uh it's a riot it's really fun you should read it if you can get it it's in german actually mm -hmm. it was yeah, I've, I've, I've seen there's a german edition um yeah it was published in five five languages in three continents and i grossed thirty two hundred dollars Right. Well, <laughs> that, that convinced me I should be a screenwriter instead of a novelist. <laughs> because Warren Beatty paid me $27,000 for my first screenplay, and I don't think he even ever read it. <laughs> But those days are more or less over. There's no easy money to be made writing screenplays anymore. Um, and if this... If this film gets made, I won't make any real money on it. But I would love to see it made. I, I think it's a delightful story. Mm -hmm. I love it. Yeah, no, I think that would be terrific. It's so, it's good. I like it. I really like it. But who the fuck knows? But people who read it seem to like it also. You know, until you ask them for money. <laughs> And suddenly they have problems. <laughs> yeah, that sounds familiar. <laughs> <laughs> Bye.